Salvation is often spoken of in very earthly terms. Salvation is typically spoken of as yet another series of claims made by a religion of this world. There are even books that are written with titles like How to Be Born Again. And yes, you will find that in the how-to section of a bookstore. There are descriptions of salvation that are so simplistic as to make it so that anybody, even unwittingly, can even accidentally become a Christian. Many people, I would say with good intentions, have made the message of salvation so simplistic that we have removed from it its very heart. And this is why it's so important to hear the words of Jesus. Because what he thinks of salvation is far more important than anything any of us think about salvation. What he says about it and the impossibility for the natural human to do it or to accomplish it, or yes, even to want it, which is where he's going to take us eventually, is something that's rarely expressed in the church today. And now we have this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. A famous passage, one that sits before an even more famous passage. Obviously, we're coming up to uh, the the best-known verse in all of Scripture. But that verse does not sit on an island all its own. There's There's a lot of pursuit to get our way up to that. Jesus is coming up to, or excuse me, is, is, is approached by a member of the Pharisees, a ruler of the people of Israel, and he comes up and he asks him a certain question. In fact, he doesn't even ask him a question at first. At first he just says, we can plainly see that you're from God due to all these signs. And Jesus goes straight to the heart with this man. He addresses the reality, what you can see is not the issue. It's what you can't see that makes all the difference. You can see these things, but if you are to see the kingdom of God, if you are to enter the kingdom of God, you cannot be looking around with natural eyes and thinking with natural mind. That will not perceive your need. I say that salvation is usually spoken of in such simplistic terms because usually we are trying with good intention to save people. We want them to know the salvation that is found in Christ alone because we know what it has done to us. We know what it is doing for the world. We know that he is the one who truly will remove all the sins from the world. That is his name, that is his mission, that is what he is going to accomplish. And for people that are in our lives, whether friends or family members, the last thing we want to see them do is to live not only this life, but also the one to come, not knowing Christ Jesus the Lord. And so with good intention, we try to make it easier and simpler and simpler The thing is, is the gospel itself is simple. But it's not simplistic. And it is not something 
that any human can just make up their mind one day to do. It requires much more than that. And this is where Christ will start introducing this concept, and he will not release this concept for about four chapters. This culminates at the end of chapter 6, where a whole bunch of people that have been following him and listening to his teaching, he finally looks at them and gives it to them both barrels. You cannot have this life unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have no life in you outside of what I will bring to you. Nothing. It removes from us every bit of self-confidence and self-reliance, and it, it encourages all things to be placed upon Christ. And you know what happened that day? Who's familiar with the end of John 6? What happened after Jesus said this? They left. A crowd that the day before was the crowd of the feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men besides women and children. Most likely anywhere from twenty to 30,000 people. The very next day they were coming to make him king by force. And Christ gave them all of this all at once. And what did it happen? They all left. Except the 12 disciples. Jesus just looks at them and says, aren't you going to go too? And then perhaps one of the best responses that Peter has ever had, he takes his foot out of his mouth for a moment just to utter a salient point. Where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to know and believe that you are indeed the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Jesus starts making enemies here at the beginning of John 3. It culminates there at the end of John 6, and then there's multiple instances of it in the chapters to follow. But here is where he starts giving what is the gospel? What is it that needs to happen to humanity? What is it that needs to happen to each individual? And how is it that it can accomplish itself? How is it that such things can be done? That is what the introduction of our passage addresses. That's why when someone says, you know, what is the gospel? And you usually quote John 3.16. It's this passage where Jesus is introducing the gospel itself. God has sent his son into the world. Not yet to condemn it. But that the world might be saved through him. That all who believe on him would have a life that doesn't end. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God and his word as we cover the introduction of this great passage. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or born from above, we'll cover that, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, 
he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit, capital S, is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born from above, or again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, this is a marvelous passage. What things you have spoken to your people through your Son is on a level that we usually do not even speak. We pray, Father, that we pull our minds from simple earthly things to those things from above. That we may delight in a salvation so great and terrible that it cannot be accomplished by the hands of natural people but that it required the very creator of the universe to formulate, carry out, and apply. Father, it is staggering to know that you have known our names since before the world was, that you called us by name, that you sought us out, that you brought us into this world born from above, that we may walk in the life of the Spirit. We thank you, Father, for this. It is an astounding reality, and it is challenging to our pride. We thank you for this in your Son's name. Amen. You can be seated. I hope you're looking forward to John 3, because I am. John 3 is perhaps one of the hardest and one of the most um, fascinating chapters to preach on and to study. And so as we go through this over the next couple of months, I hope it is something that sits in your mind um, as quite important. Because the reality is what John is laying out for us here is, one, the start of the gospel, and two, the first responses to the gospel in skepticism. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He is questioning Jesus about these things, wondering about these things. John is using his story as one of the skeptic stories. There's a parallel story at the end of the gospel. Thomas, another skeptic to the resurrection. John uses both of these men to show the reality that, yes, the claims we are making are not verifiable by you. Not when it comes to before the world was created, the word of God was there and was God. That nothing was made except it was made through him. You can't go out and see the replay of that, can you? No. There's nothing. Now, I look forward to doing that someday. I would love to see creation take place in the manner that it did. That would be an amazing thing to witness. But we can't go back to that. Instead, we're, we're in a world that Job knew very well, that God came up and reminded him of, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You can't speak to that perspective at all, and neither can I. We can only speak what God has spoken to us, and we must do so faithfully. And this is where John comes up to us. John specifically written so that people who are reading his book would 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That is his stated purpose. He states that at the close of the book. And his job here is to show, yes, of course there will be disagreements with this. Of course there will be people who call into question resurrection. There will be people who call into question the necessity of God to bring about these things. John doesn't hide from that. He instead makes it one of the hallmarks of how he addresses and introduces the gospel. We start out with a tragic story. And when I say a tragic story, I mean it. Nicodemus, a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the people of Israel, an expert in the law, devoting his life to the actions of the law, devoting his life to the teachings of the law, to the people of God, doesn't know God. What a tragedy. To have devoted one's entire life to the people of Israel, to the book of the law, to the teaching, to being an expert, to being a politician, to being a ruler of the people in the temple, in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, and to still miss the entire story. To still pursue these things as if they were merely human-level interactions. Even when it goes to his expectations of who Messiah would be, he would come and deliver to us a ruler just like David or a prophet just like Moses and carry out the same human ordinances that have been going on for all these times. Nobody had foreseen how broad the gospel was going to be. No one could foresee what the Messiah was actually going to accomplish. They had theories they were working on all manner of theories. And the Pharisees knew more than anybody the promises of Scripture and the commands of the law. They had the right book. They had the right God. They had the right people. They had the right temple. They had the right city. They had the right mountain. They had the right prophecies. Still not know God. My pastor growing up had a way of speaking about the Pharisees in general. Obviously, some were truly saved individuals. But as a whole, they demonstrated themselves through the teachings of Jesus to have, as he would put it, all the right luggage and being at the right dock, and the only thing they missed was the boat. And what a tragedy this would be. What a tragedy this would be. And as Jesus speaks to him, as he says in a later passage, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things. I can go find, and now I'm paraphrasing on the other side, I can go find a shepherd boy who knows these things. But to seek for the gospel and the wisdom and the rulership of man will never be found. It simply cannot be seen this way. And so we introduce ourselves, John introduces us to the tragedy of Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. 
This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Why do they know this? Because of the signs. No one can do the signs that you're doing unless God is with him. Witness here the end of human perception. That's as high as it can go. We can recognize the source of the works. Nobody can do signs like this. The water to wine, there were several other signs that Jesus was doing that were not listed here. John does that intentionally. We'll see it. But as you go through the Gospel of John, you're going to see Jesus doing different signs all over that indicate aspects about who he is and what he's here to accomplish. And so what Nicodemus is saying is, look, we understand There is absolutely nobody in the history of mankind who can do signs of this severity unless God was doing it through him. That's a remarkable way to introduce himself. It's not a question. It's not a wonderment. It's actually actually a declarative statement of how good their perception is. Out of all the people in Israel, you have finally met our eye, us, the Sanhedrin, the rulers in Jerusalem, We recognize you. And what does Jesus do? Let's look at you. You think your perception is so good. The limits of natural sight will leave you only with properly identifying Jesus. That is not salvation. And I say this to my brothers and sisters who are in apologetics these days, even separated from the life of the church. Getting people to recognize and admit who Jesus is does not save them. That is not spreading the gospel. The gospel is the message of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his burial and his resurrection, his ascension, his promise to come again. His righteousness accomplished on our behalf. His death on our behalf as an atonement for our sins. Only these things are you because God is gracious. And only these things come to you because they are received by a hand of faith that has already been brought into the world by the power of God. And so how does Jesus interact with him? He doesn't just go, wow, I mean, there's, there's got to be a, a million people in all of Israel, and out of all of that, you 70 Sanhedrin and the Pharisees have recognized my works when I've just been doing up in Galilee, and nobody cares about Galilee. He doesn't give them an attaboy. Way to go. You recognized who I am. You know who I am. You admitted who I am. He doesn't go, there. Salvation accomplished. And yet many people are satisfied when a friend of theirs or an acquaintance of theirs simply recognizes who Jesus is and admits who he is. Admitting who he is. There's there's some really powerful forces in this world that recognize who Jesus is. That doesn't save them either. I guarantee you, Satan has better theology than I do. He's seen God face to face. I haven't. Even the demons, we're told in James, know that God is one. They verified monotheism with their own eyes. 
and they tremble. Knowing aspects about God or about Jesus does not save people. They do have to know about Jesus, but that's not the end of the story. Something has to happen that's beyond our physical ears and our physical mind. There has to be something more. So what does Jesus say? In fact, not only does it have to be something more, you have to be a completely different person. What does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is, I'll just read it, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is a strange word, the word for again there. There's a normal word for again in Greek. This is not the normal one. This actually means from above. But the reality is, since you've already been born once, if you're born from above, you're also going to be born again. And so it carries that connotation with it. But the way English works, we can't carry double meaning. And so you have to address it here. The reality is, tradition has caused us to lean into the born again thing. But in reality, the clearest translation is born from above. It means both. It's like a 60-40 split type thing. And every other time John uses this word in the Gospel of John, everyone translates it from above. So I'm going to translate it that way because it's necessary. Because it's actually what Jesus is expressing. Obviously the nature is that it will be double, but the real focus is, as he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so here he actually takes Nicodemus's observation and says, where Nicodemus comes up to him and says, look, we can see who you are. We can see what you're accomplishing. We can even see that God is with you because the fruit of it has borne out in what you do and in the signs that you do. And Jesus turns it right around and shows them the limits of his sight. Unless you have been born from above, you can't even see the kingdom. That is enormously insulting to a ruler of the people of Israel, a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the Pharisees, learned enough to be able to interact with him, perceptive enough to see who he is, and esteemed enough for all of the Sanhedrin to send him as the representative. And Jesus telling him, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Not in your current state. How is it that one could be born from above? And what about this kingdom of God? Think about how it would fall on the ears of Nicodemus, who is expecting the kingdom of God to be a resurgence of the Davidic kingdom of the united kingdom of the people of Israel after, after a thousand years of division and wars and captivity and rulership by foreign powers, first by Babylon and then Persia and then Greece and then Rome. Now still occupied by Rome, the Sanhedrin as rulers of Israel can't even do anything without say-so from someone like a governor like Pilate. They yearned 
for the kingdom of God to be realized in this world yet again. They yearned for a kingdom that they could see and handle, where they could have a palace where the Messiah would set up his kingdom that would rule over all the nations. That's what they were expecting. Imagine how this falls on his ears. What you're waiting for, you can't even see with natural eyes. What a surprising thing to hear. And it's just like Jesus to take somebody who is confident in their current situation and give them a random part of their life to demonstrate you haven't even seen a piece of it yet. Think about it for the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to gain eternal life? And what does Jesus say to him? It almost falls on our ears strange. You know, all that stuff you have, go give it to the poor. There, you'll have eternal life. If you read it on the surface, you're just like, is Jesus saying that poverty is the way to eternal life? No. The man comes up to him wanting eternal life, and Jesus turns around and says, no, you don't. Let me show you. What if I told you, give away everything? What would you do? Well, the man had his answer. He turned on his heels and walked away sorrowful because he had great riches. Well, more accurately, his riches had a great hold on him. Jesus does this when somebody comes up confident of their perception of what he's doing, even confident on their perception of the gospel. And when, he, when Nicodemus comes up, he just comes up to say, we approve. You're obviously from God. He's not even asking questions. And Jesus goes, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Why? In order to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born from above. Not in a natural birth like all men and women have experienced. No, no, no. A new birth. This is why some people translate this born again. Perfectly legitimate. That's fine. Born from above. This is not the same type of birth. And so Nicodemus obviously looks at this and is confused. He doesn't quite grasp that. He says, that doesn't make any sense. No language in any of the scriptures speaks to such a thing. And so he takes it enormously literal. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? We'll come up with Jesus' response here in a second because it's almost, it's almost hyperbolic. Nicodemus was looking for a physical kingdom of God, a temporal fulfillment of all the promises made to the people of Israel. And he was within normalcy, at least as far as our perception is concerned, to expect such a thing. If we lived during the time of the Old Testament, leading up to the times of Jesus, we would be expecting the same thing. We would be just as wrong about his first coming as I argue we all are on his second coming. Because that's not the point of prophecy. It's not to be clear ahead of time. It's to show us our need for God. The need for repentance. It's to show us the fact that unless God is saving us, we are not saved at all. Let me ask you a question. How much did you have to do with your first birth? Do you ask your parents, hey guys, I'd really like to be alive. Uh, this would be great. Uh, you could take me on bike rides and send me to school. I won't yell at you too much or anything like this. Anything like this? No. 
No, you don't even remember your birth, do you? This is one of the great aspects of how Jesus is using this picture. He doesn't say you're going to have to have a whole new mind. That was Old Testament way of thinking, an Old Testament way of speaking, new hearts and new minds and stuff. No, Jesus says, you just need new life, new everything, sourced completely and totally in God's working. You must be born from above. And so Nicodemus looks and says, this doesn't, that doesn't really, how, what? It was so simple, wasn't it? Jerusalem, temple, Messiah, ruler, shoot all the bad guys, set up the good guy, everything's fine. The Messiah would rule over the world. He would put an end to sin by killing all those sinners. Right? This is why the Pharisees constantly had this attitude of looking at Jesus and going, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And they never look back and say, why is he eating with us? And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing out to them. He's pulling apart their heart and exposing that you can clean up the outside to the eyes and the perception of man. I see to the center. And at the very heart of this attitude is somebody whose heart and whose mind has not come from God, but is earthly, to bring up James again, spiritual and demonic. Well, Jesus, that's no way to gain followers. I mean, if you really want to be a really famous rabbi, this is the worst way to start out your message. Because if you're trying to get some notoriety or just do some pragmatic stuff so that you can get more people to listen to your message, just hold off on the, you know, everyone's hearts is darkened by the spiritual forces of death. Leave that to later. Start off with, aren't you unhappy in your life? Don't you want to be happy? But that's not how he starts. And John includes this, the only one of the gospel writers to include this stuff about Nicodemus. He includes this stuff to interact with the reader directly. If you were standing there that day, he would say the same thing to you. You want to see the kingdom of God? You must be born from above. It is something that God works on your heart. The flesh, you, me, is of no help whatsoever. It is often said, and rightly so, that we cannot merit our way into heaven. We cannot work our way into salvation true, but why can't we? It is because our works are ours and of this earth and of a natural fallen human. Even our righteousnesses are stained with our sins. It is not because our works aren't good enough. It's because they're not of God that they cannot save us. It is why it must be on faith. It is because, not because faith is yet another work. 
It is because faith is reliance on the works of God to save us. It is throwing ourselves on the mercy of heaven to say, there is nothing in my hands I bring, and there is nothing in my life that I can have pride in with regards to achieving anything on the level of spiritual life that merits the kingdom of God. In my natural state, I cannot even see it. And without the salvation of Christ, I cannot occupy it. Nicodemus is still interacting in this world where he's expecting physical ramifications and just physical ramifications from the coming of Messiah into the world. And Jesus says, no, it's not about that. And Nicodemus asks him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered and gives just the best response. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Turns it up a notch, doesn't he? In your natural state, you can't see it. The limit of perception, as he says to him, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Yes, unless he is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter it. And isn't that the desire in our hearts when we're seeking for a solution to the problem that we know plagues all of us? We want to be where God is, but we don't want to die. And we know that in our sinful state, if we are where God is, we would die the moment we look at his face. It's one of those remarkable promises that we see at the end of the book of Revelation, where he says, my people, I will dwell with them and they will see me. They will behold my face. And I will dwell with them. And they will be my people, and I will dwell with them as their God. That is what we want, isn't it? We want to enter the kingdom of God, not just some kingdom on this earth, eternally. We want to live with God as our king. And this was that split in the understanding in the Jewish worldview. Is the Messiah going to be an earthly king or God as our king? And they couldn't quite settle that out. The reality was nobody was expecting God to be born as one of us so that we could be born as him. Nobody was expecting that the Messiah would actually be God himself. And so they'd hold these two things. Who's the ultimate ruler? Well, maybe it would just be a subservient ruler like David would say, where he would, you know, obviously he would recognize the authority of God on high. Nobody was expecting the messianic kingdom of God to actually be God as its human ruler. Nobody. And nobody was expecting the kingdom of God to be heaven invading earth. Listen to the central aspect of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Invade this world but first, invade my heart. Because what's in here is deeper and darker than anything I see out there. That's the perception 
of somebody coming to salvation. And what Jesus says here, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. Many people have theorized what Jesus is referring to here and try to draw out aspects of physical birth and spiritual birth. No, no, no. This is all a description of salvation and spiritual birth. It's taken straight out of the Old Testament. Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 37, excuse me, 36, verses 25 through 27. The fact that they need to be given new hearts, new minds. They need to be sprinkled with clean water, cleansed of their transgressions, cleansed of their iniquity, and they needed the Spirit of God, capital S, inside them in order to bring about the works of the kingdom. These things were prophesied to us. These things were given to us. Not so that we could understand that Jesus was doing something new, but that he was bringing to culmination everything that the Scriptures required of this world. No human ruler could do this. No human achievement can do this. No amount of accountability partners, no churches, no religions, no law could ever fix your problem of sin. Or my problem of sin. Or our problem of sin. This whole earth does not have what it takes to solve one person's salvation. There's a remarkable statement. If you brought together everything in this world, all the resources, all the wise people, all the intelligence, all the learning, all the books, all the control, all the laws and rules and religions and everything else, you cannot save a single person Though the whole earth joined together in unified purpose to save one cannot do it. Because by definition, the kingdom of God, referred to in all the other gospels as the kingdom of heaven, cannot be occupied by the actions of earth. That is why our works do not save us and cannot save us and will never save us. It is not because some theologian has decided that. It is because Christ has destroyed our hope in ourselves. And he says, you must be born of water and the Spirit, a recognition that your sin must be cleansed and purified, and the Spirit of God must breathe new life into this corpse that you are. It is insulting. It is offensive, and it's designed to be, to bring us to an end of ourselves. And it's also fully consistent with everything the Scriptures have ever said about the work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the most misunderstood member of the Holy Trinity, the most mistaught about member, His primary role from creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where he's first mentioned, to the very last verses of the Bible, where he's standing with the church anticipating the return of Christ. From the beginning to the end, he is the one who gives life. It is his primary role everywhere, at all points. 
And so we see when Jesus refers to him, this is just always amazing to me, when the Son of God refers to the Holy Spirit of God, interacting with his role and sphere of responsibility. Water is not enough to enter you into the kingdom of heaven. You must also be born of the Spirit. May that be the nail in the coffin to the idea that the only thing keeping me out of the kingdom of God is my sin. There's much more keeping you out of the kingdom of God than sin. It is true that our sin can well be looked at and certainly is spoken of in Scripture as a debt. But that wasn't our only problem. It is that the good works of the kingdom couldn't even be performed by a sinless human. Should all my sins simply be forgiven and none of the works of Christ be applied to me, Let's put that hypothetical out. How quick would my sinless perfection last? Let me ask you it in another way and reflex. Assume all your sins are paid for and canceled off your account and no other changes made, just your sins forgiven at 8 a.m. At what time would you lose that salvation and become sinful again? Yeah, say it loudly so I can hear it. 8 a.m., thank you. Some of you might hold out longer than others due to culture or influence, maybe to 801. But as I look at the only other sinless man in history, I see him living in paradise, all of his food being supplied by a God who is lavishly gracious. And I see him full and well-supplied, not starving, walking up to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and saying, that also looks good for food, and it also looks like it's going to make me wise. I want to be God. It is not just sin that's a problem. It's that the kingdom of heaven requires the will of God to be being done at all points, in all ways, everywhere. It is not just that we have our sins paid off. That is half the story. It's that in salvation, we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And then we live out of fulfilled law. That's why the law has no power over us anymore. And there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law has been dealt with when it comes to me. It is now Christ bringing life within me. The Holy Spirit setting up residence. And we're watching a magnificent shift. And John is speaking to people who will live in a time where he does not live. Where John says, we saw these things. We beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. Every aspect of everything he did, everything he taught, everything he was. That is the kingdom of heaven full of grace and truth, full of salvation. And we can't enter it for a moment in our natural state. We can't even perceive it, even if we recognize who Jesus is 
And so the question comes then, how in the world can someone be saved? How could somebody ever come to salvation under an expression like that? And that's where Jesus immediately takes them. If you're looking for your birthright to settle it, or if you're looking for your nationality or ethnicity or family of origin or any of these things, that which is of the flesh is flesh. He says it right here in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the capital S spirit is spirit. You cannot solve heavenly problems with earthly hands. That is why salvation will never be by works. You cannot solve heavenly problems with earthly hands. And this is why Jesus says, don't marvel that I tell you you have to be born again. You know this. You think there's just signs in what I'm doing? I created the world with signs in it to teach you this. And so he takes him to a picture in nature. Look at it in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, you came to me this night lauding your perceptual your, your, your perceptive abilities. But you don't even know where the wind comes from. You don't even know where it's going. You can't even see air. Why would I ever depend on your perception? Insulting. Because wind and air is stuff of earth. It's not even heavenly stuff. And how as Jesus put it, he says... You can't even perceive earthly things well. You just make extrapolations. When you see the leaves move, you perceive that there must be air behind it and wind moving it. It's not like the tree is sitting there just shaking its leaves. You perceive that something caused it. And he says, that's fine that you perceive that, but that doesn't make you a tree That doesn't make you creator. That doesn't bring you into a special kingdom. That's just your perception of these things. And your perception is not that great. You really can't even see all earthly things. Why would you think that you can see heavenly things? I love the blow that it is to Nicodemus's concept of what the Spirit of God was doing. Because I hear this all the time in my own mind, and I hear it all the time in churches. Here is where the Spirit is at work. This is what the Spirit is doing. My friends, we don't know anything about that. The Spirit of God works in people's perceptions and hearts and minds in ways that we cannot see. Who's to say if wearing a certain color one day affected somebody's way of thinking in such a way that it caused them to step in a different contingency than they would have otherwise? because they were distracted, let them down a different road or a different path that ultimately ended up at salvation. How does that work? Could you possibly perceive it? Do you stand in front of your dresser each morning going, if I wear a blue shirt or a yellow shirt, somebody will be saved or somebody won't? Do you make decisions like this? No, because our perception cannot conceive of the contingencies of this world. And that's just earth stuff. What Jesus is saying is, you have no idea where the Spirit's going to go. 
Do not laud yourself by recognizing it in one aspect of Jesus' signs. He says the Spirit of God blows where he wills, goes where he wills, saves whom he wills, and you cannot even see it. And that's why Nicodemus responds with what we will address next week. How can this be? And Jesus responds to him and says, you're a teacher of Israel. You don't know this. You should have known this. Sin is not an earth problem. It is a heavenly problem. Salvation then must come from heaven and not earth. And this is what is wrong in most people's perception of salvation because they define salvation based on their experience. When they committed their life to Christ and had faith in Christ and to salvation, my friends, God's Spirit was at work behind the scenes well before that, bringing you to that moment. Scripture informs us of the fact that it wasn't just when we were born into this world that God intended then to save us at whatever age we were saved. It says, before he created anything, he already knew us. Because his salvation does not come from earth or the stuff of earth. His salvation comes from heaven and invades the earth and brings about a new life that did not exist before. And if you are a Christian today, you know that new life. Because your old life is at war with it every day. Constantly battling back and forth. One nature versus the other. Two natures at war. How is it that we then live in this world? How is it that as Christians we deal with that? Very, very simple. Feed the new nature and starve the old. And when I say starve the old, I mean to death. Don't give it quarter. Don't give it moments. Don't give it anything. Feed your new nature. You say, well, where is this new nature from? It's from heaven. It needs heavenly food. It doesn't need self-help books. It doesn't need anything like that. It needs the word of God and everything that proceeds from his word. Everything that his word creates, that is spiritual in this world. That is why we are in this room together today. Because God's spirit has not only inspired scripture, he has saved not just you, but others in this world. And it is through fellowship that we are nourished, and encouraged, and brought towards our Father. Church, Gathering together like this is so that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. This is not an earthly work. And if church for you is an earthly work, may I challenge that really quick? If this is not the stuff of heaven, this is not doing you anything. This best be the place where God is at work in his people as they gather together to feed off of the food he has given to us. 
so that we can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and walk in a manner consistent with the Spirit that brought us to life. The Spirit of God as the life giver is not the source of our emotions or the source of our conscience or any such thing. He is the one that brought us to life and will see to it that not one of us is lost. That is a remarkable thing. And I want you to realize it this day. It confuses Nicodemus and it should confuse us. That's one of the great aspects of this gospel is that it will continually go straight to the heart of the matter until you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have life in his name. Let's pray to that end. Our Father, for the same purpose of this gospel, we pray that our time in it aim at the same, that those within the sound of our voices would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Father, we desire this not because our desire will bring it about, but because you have even dealt in the history of time to insist to use your people's prayers to bring about your inevitable future. And we are thankful that we get to be a part of that. We are thankful that you do not just listen to our requests and say yes to everything. We thank you that we get to join what you are doing. We pray that you bring life to those who do not have it. Bring them to the end of themselves, that they may repent and become children of God rather than just children of man. May new life be breathed into our lives, even this week, this month, this year, and until you call us home. We pray, Father, for these things with great fervor. In your son's name, amen.